Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. David is a fugitive on the run from King Saul, the man to whom he is most loyal. And he has responsibility to protect his own immediate family who are also in danger of being killed by Saul. But he also has responsibility to protect 600 men and their families who have pledged their loyalty to him and against Saul. But in chapter 27, David had a lapse in judgment. Instead of continuing to trust in God for his protection and for God to, for God to be his refuge, David pursued safety and took that into his own hands. And he instead sought refuge in the Philistine city of Gath. And his God excluded refuge through the Philistine king and their city actually worked. The Philistine king turns him into a kind of mercenary in exchange um, for David fighting for the Philistines. He would receive some land of his own. But instead of fighting for the Philistines, David and his men went to southern Israel, but instead of fighting against them, they actually eliminated some of Israel's enemies, the Amalekites and others. And the whole time, King Achish is impressed and thankful to have David on his side because he thought that David had weakened Israel. And as a result, Achish now wanted to attack Israel and to put Israel out of its misery. And so he and the other four Philistine kings, that is Achish and the other four Philistine kings, bring their men to, the, to battle in central Israel. But the other kings want nothing to do with David. They don't want David and his men fighting with them. So Achish apologetically sends David and his men back to Ziklag and says, you can't be a part of this battle. They don't trust you. And God providentially rescued David from his own schemes. And now it's time for David and his men to go back and to rest from their victory that they had received at the hand of God and His grace. That God providentially came and worked on their behalf to, to eliminate or alleviate this potential threat. They could have been exposed in front of the Philistines and the Philistines could have, have counterattacked uh, David and his men. But instead, God rescued them by sending them back to their place. And so, now we expect them to go back, make it home, and enjoy some time of, of rest and victory with their family. And let's notice what happens here as we read the text, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire and they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, 
Please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to them, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So David went, he and 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 men were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Uh, to, to cross the brook, Besor remained behind. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate and then his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of the Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Cherethites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except for 400 men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives, but nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of the other livestock, and they said, this is David's spoil. We'll stop there. Uh, for now and pick up the rest as we get to it. In this chapter, we see that when the wicked attack, the righteous find their strength in God. When the wicked attack, the righteous find their strength in God. And uh, David is in that kind of situation. After being turned away, David and his 600 men take uh, the three-day, 50-mile trip from Aphek back down to their homeland, effectively, Ziklag. And this was an exciting time for them. They were expecting to come home to give news to their family. And their families would have been eager to find out how they got out of this difficult situation, this disastrous situation where they were going into battle with the Philistines against their own people, Israel. So their families wanted to hear the news, I'm sure. But instead of coming back to their family... As David and his men draw closer to Ziklag, they notice smoke rising in the horizon. It wasn't an ordinary plume that comes from fire pits as the women are cooking the dinner, but rather a large blaze. And as they draw closer and closer to Ziklag, their hearts sink deeper and deeper into their guts. And their astonishment turns into a fearful stagger, which quickly turns into a full-out sprint. When they arrive, their worst fears are realized. The city is indeed on fire and all of their possessions have been plundered. But worst of all, the women and children have been taken. What are they going to do? We know from the text, reading it from outside, that the Amalekites are responsible. But David and his men have no idea. They are gone without a trace. 
They have no idea who did this to them, and they have no clue which direction they went or how long they've been gone. When the wicked attack, the righteous find their strength in the Lord. We see this in verses 1 through 6. The righteous find their strength in the Lord even when they're personally hurt by tragedy. They come back to their family being gone, and they didn't have much time to find their family if they were going to find them at all and if they were going to find them alive. The Malachites likely would have kidnapped them in order to sell them as slaves. And so if David was going to find them, they would have to hurry. What a difficult predicament for David. He's been running from Saul for years now, and just when he finds some solace out in the country land of Ziklag, tragedy strikes in the most terrible way. And the response by David and his men in verse 4 is to cry. That they lift up their voices, verse 4 says, and they wept until there was no strength left in them to weep. The righteous find their strength in the Lord even when they're personally hurt by tragedy. But matters get worse for David. If this wasn't bad enough, it gets worse. Look at verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people excuse me, the people spoke of stoning him for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. The righteous find strength in the Lord even when they are personally attacked by their own people. In the search for a solution, those who have been hurt by tragedy look to pin responsibility for their loss on someone who could have prevented it. And so here in the text we see that, that these men were embittered. They were hurt and saddened and enraged toward their leader. And they went so far as to consider putting him to death. You are responsible for our family being gone, and so we are going to kill you. This is a, a, a capital offense in our eyes. So David's in a difficult spot, isn't he? His own people have turned, turned against him. And so what is he supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? When, when the people who are closest with us turn against us, well, let me just uh, give you some examples from Scripture of people who, who experienced mistreatment from people who were close to them and how they responded. Moses experienced a similar kind of, of lashback when he was in the wilderness. He led them to a place of safety. I mean, think about all that Moses had done for them, getting them out from underneath the oppression of the Egyptians, seeing God do some great works, And yet, when they found themselves without food and water, they turned against Him and were ready to stone Him. The prophets experienced the same kind of mistreatment by Israel. The people that they were working for were the people that were actually turning against them. And of course, Jesus knew the pain of betrayal from the people that He cared for most. Paul knew what it was like to be despised and mistreated by the churches that he sacrificed himself for. And we might expect each of these leaders to despair or to lash back out at the people and put them in their place, but instead, each one of these examples, including David here in 1 Samuel 30, they leaned harder on God. So what do we do when our own people, when people who are closest to us, turn against us? The answer is that we lean harder on God. Notice what David does at the end of verse 6. But... 
David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Instead of turning to despair and, and woe is me and, and I'm going to take this out on you, it's not my fault. He found his strength in the Lord. What kind of strength was this? How, how was it that David found his strength in the Lord? Well, the text doesn't tell us explicitly, but turn back to chapter 23 because we have a similar expression that's used when Jonathan's working to encourage David. Chapter 23, verse 16. Jonathan here strengthens David in the Lord. And how did he do it? Chapter 23, verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him or strengthened him, same, same word, in God. Verse 17. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid because the hand of Saul my father will not find you and you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you and Saul my father knows that also. So, Jonathan encourages or strengthens David in God, verse 16. And how, did he, how does he do it, verse 17? He reminds David about God's promises, doesn't he? He reminds David of what God had, had promised to him. And so for Jonathan to strengthen David, it was to remind David of God's Word. And so here, back in chapter 30, for David to strengthen himself in the Lord means that David reminded himself of God's Word. What had God promised to him? And you know, saints throughout history have have used this same tactic. It's a timeless tactic that we need to learn. And that is that when we are are, are, um, in times of despair, when we are in times of trouble, when, when... our, the closest people to us turn against us. We don't try to take out vengeance on them. Instead, we find our strength in the Lord. Do you remember Job? After the loss of his family and wealth, what did he do? He reminded himself of the goodness of God. He says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know that the Lord is good. So, Even though my circumstances seem to be speaking against that idea, I know what is true. And that's what I'm going to hold on to. God's Word, God's promise that He is good. I think David might have been thinking during this time a similar way to how he writes in the Psalms. Psalm 56 might give us an idea of how David might think when people turn against him. Listen to Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. This is when... Uh, David tried to find refuge in Gath for the first time in 1 Samuel 21. He says in Psalm 56, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? This is when Saul's chasing him. He's trying to figure out a way to get away from Saul. And so he goes to the Philistine country to try to seek asylum there. And... And they discover him quickly, and so he has to pretend like he's insane. But he writes during that time and says, When I'm afraid, I trust in you. He finds his strength in the Lord. What what can mere man do to me? God, I have you on my side. Friends, when people turn against you, and they will, people fail. People fail us all the time, don't they? All the time. Okay, It's a little overstatement, but hyperbole for uh, for the sake of argument. If people fail us often, we fail each other often. So what do we do? Take it, take it back out on them? Make sure everybody else knows so that they can ha- have a bad idea about that person? And we find our strength in the Lord. 
When the wicked attack, the righteous find their strength in the Lord. Secondly, when the wicked attack, the righteous seek wisdom from the Lord. Verses 7 through 10. The righteous seek wisdom from the Lord. This is what David does. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. Verse 8, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he, the Lord, said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So not only should we remind ourselves of what God has promised and of what a great God we serve, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, but we also should seek wisdom through, the, uh, through Him in prayer. In this case, David doesn't rashly start a wild goose chase in every different direction. All right, you guys go out in that direction. I'll go in this direction. The only way that he's going to recover what is lost is if God leads him. This task is too great. He doesn't know who's taken his family. He doesn't know where they are. He doesn't know how, far, how long they've been gone. But he does some, know someone who does. And so he finds his wisdom in the Lord. In fact, if he just started out on his own, apart from God, he could actually jeopardize his own men, couldn't he? He could put them into to a place of danger and potentially lose their families in the process. And so God speaks to them through this ephod, through the priest, and says, go. Go after them, and you will find them. He gives them the direction to go. So they head out after the men. Verse 10, But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor remained behind. So here's a little detail that's going to become important later. And that is that 600 men went with David, but because of all this traveling that they had done over the last probably week and the preparation for battle, these guys are just too exhausted to continue any further, 200 of them. Remember, they had gone from Ziklag all the way up to Aphek. That's a three-day journey. And then from Aphek, they were turned away up there, not able to participate in the battle with the Philistines. From there, back down to Ziklag, another three-day journey. They're exhausted from grief. And now they need to go find the people who had taken, who had taken these, um, this family of theirs. And so, as they're getting close, 200 of the men are too, too, too uh, exhausted to continue. When the wicked attack, the righteous find their strength in the Lord, and the righteous seek wisdom from the Lord. Thirdly, when the wicked attack, the righteous recover their loss by God's power through ordinary means. Now, this isn't always the case. God sometimes works extraordinarily, miraculously. But here... The righteous recover their loss by God through ordinary means. And in this case, David uses an enemy spy. David and his men come across this Egyptian man who, in verses 11 through 12, had, had, uh, he, he was part of the Amalekite army. Apparently what had happened is the Amalekites had gone south to Egypt and they had made some Egyptians their servants. And so the Egyptians were now fighting with and for the Amalekites. But then, this one Egyptian got too sick, and so they kind of saw him as extra baggage. We're just going to have to do too much to try to take care of this man, so we'll just leave him behind. Leave him for dead. Let David and his men take him and kill him. We don't care. But God actually was working providentially to put this Egyptian man exactly where he was. 
Because in verse 13, David says, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. My master left me behind when I felt when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid. He tells them where they made a raid, including at Ziklag at the end of verse 14. And then verse 15, David said to him, will you bring me down to this band? In other words, I need to know where these people are. So can you be my guide? Can you take me to where they're at right now? Because we want our families back. And the man agrees. Do you see what's going on here in the larger picture? Take a step back with me from the narrative and think, how were David and his men going to find their attackers? I mean, it had been three days since they were last home. Imagine how far the enemies could have traveled in three days. They could have been anywhere. And yet, luckily, right, an Egyptian who just so happens to be sick and just so happens to be ill-disposed towards the Amalekites that he's, not, he's willing to give them up and this Egyptian who just so happens to know the location of the Amalekites, and this Egyptian who just so happens to be willing to spill the beans in exchange for three days' worth of food and immunity. You see what's happening here? It's not luck. It's not a coincidence that this Egyptian just happened to be there. But, in fact, God is working behind the scenes in the story of David to rescue His people when they are in trouble. And God often does it through something that, that may not look spectacular, like a, a sick an Egypt, Egyptian who just happens to come into our path. He often does it through ordinary yet providential means. So David uses the enemy spy, and then in verses 16 through 20, David fights the battle. He recovers his resources. With the help of this Egyptian who leads him exactly to where their camp is, and by the providence of God, David and his men are led to the camp of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were enjoying their spoils. They were eating and drinking and dancing and enjoying their victory, thinking that there was no possibility of a counterattack. Who could possibly find us where we are? And this made for a perfect opportunity for David and his men to come with a surprise attack against a group that was likely much larger than they and to come away without any injury to his own men. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 17, David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them, that is the man of the Amalekites, escaped except for 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So apparently they killed all the men, the fighting men, and just some young men got away. And the result was, in verses 18 through through 20, you should have, Notice as we read through that that everything was recovered. Verse 18 says, So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. Then verse 19, But nothing of theirs was missing. And then it goes on to talk about some of those things. The end of verse 19, David brought it all back. Verse 20, So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle. And then when the people were talking about all these things, they said, This is David's spoil. God providentially worked to rescue uh, the people who had been taken by the Amalekites through just some ordinary means of an Egyptian who happened to be sick along the way and who was willing to, to give up the location of the Amalekites. When the wicked attack, the righteous recover their loss by God's power through ordinary means. And then, number four, when the wicked are defeated, the righteous give glory to God. When the wicked are defeated... 
The righteous give glory to God. Or we could say it this way. The righteous don't forget God. In verses 21 and 22, David's fighting men don't want to share the spoils. They think, hey, this is our victory. Remember, remember we had 600 men. 400 of them are only the ones who went into battle against the Amalekites. The 200 stayed behind because they were too exhausted. And so these 400 men are saying, no, they're not getting anything. Look at, look at uh, verse 21. When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with them, then David approached the people and greeted them. And then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, because they did not go out with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man his wife and his children, and they may lead them away and depart. So we don't want their families. They can have those back. But everything else belongs to us. We get to keep all the animals. We get to keep, keep all the riches. Nothing belongs to them. They didn't participate in the battle. I mean, they didn't risk their lives. They stayed back here with their feet up on a hammock enjoying a rest. And so said, listen, we, we brought our families out of a desperate state. And, and so they don't deserve any part of the spoils. They don't want to share any of it except to give their families back. David's men here in verse 22 are described as wicked and worthless. Worthless is the same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 12 to describe Eli's sons. And it's the same word that's used in chapter 10, verse 27 to describe the men who opposed Saul. It's the same word that's used to describe Nabal in chapter 25, verse 25. And now David's 400 fighting men, or at least some of them who are saying they shouldn't get the spoil are basically saying they don't deserve any. They're a bunch of slackers. Here's another opportunity for David to go into despair because his idea of what is right to share with everybody, as he's going to do, is being opposed by the majority of his men. And he could have responded in agreement and said, you know what, these guys are right. We were the ones who did all the work. We do deserve more of the spoil. But notice what he does instead. David puts things into perspective in verses 23 through 25. Then David said, you must not do so. That is, keep back the spoils just for yourselves, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered us, uh, delivered into our hand the man that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. David knows something about this victory that ought to be evident to us readers. And that is that victory comes from the Lord. Notice this in the text. Verse 23, Then David said, You must not do so, my brothers. You can't withhold this because... With what the Lord has given us. See what he's seeing here? He's seeing something bigger than what they're saying. They're saying, we did all the work. We are the ones who went into battle and risked our lives. David's saying, no, it's the Lord who gave us the victory. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Proverbs 21.31 Victory does not come by human effort alone. 
The fighting men didn't win on their own power. God won. And so we need to keep this in mind so that we don't end up forgetting God while we're enjoying His gifts instead of thanking Him. We ought to be pointing our praise not to ourselves but to God. And that's the temptation, really. When we get into a desperate situation, we're wondering how we're going to get out. God rescues us. He gives us a victory. Maybe even through our... Uh, he, he gives us the strength to do it. And, and the temptation for us is that I got all of this on my own power. Yeah, we need to look back and remember that it was God that gave us the power, that we can do nothing apart from Him. David also knew that there's more to victory than just the people on the battlefield, right? God was the one who provided the victory, but just because you're the only ones fighting doesn't mean you're the only ones that participated in, in the engagement. That, the, that when it comes to victory, there are other responsibilities. Just like in, with our military, there are people who supply food. There are people who care for the wounded. There are people who design and make the arm, armory and the, and the weapons. And in this case, there were men who, David says, protected our valuables. They stayed back at the brook and they protected those things from other raiders. And in doing so, David is spreading out the spoil to more than just the people who engage in the battle. And he's setting a precedent, as verse 25 tells us, he's setting a precedent, precedent that he's not going to be a cutthroat, win-at-all-costs type of king. A, a guy who's going to take the spoils for himself. But instead, he was going to be a fair, responsible, caring, and a man who is guided by the heart of God. He's setting a precedent here in an early battle, even before he becomes king officially. Not only does he divide the spoils among the 600 men and their families, but he also divides the spoils even farther. Notice verses 26 through 31. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord to those who were in Bethel and to those who were in Ramoth of the Negev and to those who were in Jeter and to those who were in Aror and to those who were in Sifmoth and to those who were in Eshtimoah and to those who were in Rachel and to those who were in the cities of the Jeremielites and to those who were in the city of the Kenites and to those who were in Hormah and to those who were in Borashan and to those who were in Athek and to those who were in Hebron and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. It would be one thing to give the spoils to just the 400 men who were fighting. David didn't do that. It would be another thing to give the spoils just to the 600 men who were part of his inner group. They were traveling around with him and giving their loyalty to him. David went beyond that even. He shared the spoils with people who weren't a part of that inner group, that 600 men. And he shares the, the, the spoils with the leaders of, the, of southern Israel, all these cities here in verses 27 to 31, are cities in southern Israel. And so David is saying, while I was on the run from King Saul, some of you helped to protect me by not giving me up. Others of you probably housed me. And so he's, he's setting a precedent of, of saying, listen, you had a part in this victory. So I'm going to send some of the spoils to you. This is also 
the place where David would begin to reign as king in Hebron, the southern region of Israel. And so he's actually endearing himself, isn't he, to, to his former constituents. And so I think that David was both looking back, remembering those who had helped him for his quest for safety from the violent king, and he's also looking forward to the future kingdom over which he's going to rule. And he knows that he needs to have some men on his side. When the wicked attack, we must find our strength in the Lord. So let me give you a principle to consider and then some implications uh, as well. Uh, Four applications, excuse me. Okay, first principle to consider. How you respond in times of tragedy and betrayal reveals the object of your trust. How you respond in times of tragedy and betrayal reveals the object of your trust. So, in other words, in whom do you trust? When tragedy and betrayal from people who are closest to you, when that takes place, how you respond in those times will reveal in whom you trust. I mean, how tragic was it for David to come back home to a ravaged city and in his time of mourning and grief, his own men turn against him, suggesting and, and really stating that this was his fault. You caused this to happen, David. But rather than despairing, David showed where his trust lied. This is not what Saul did when he was feeling alone and defeated. Remember what Saul did? He effectively went and rubbed the genie bottle. Went to the witch to find out some more. I need some more information from you. All right, genie, give me my wishes. Bring me back to a place of peace and prosperity. It's it's amazing that roughly at the same time that Saul is doing that, David is Saul is seeking demonic means to find out what will be best for his personal situation. David is using God ordained means, God ordained means in order to find God's will. In other words, David seeks God's will God's way because he trusts in God. Saul doesn't. And so we have a contrast in chapters 28 and 30 between a man who uses God for his gifts, Saul, and a man who submits himself to God and his purposes even when the gifts of God are taken away. That when tragedy and betrayal strikes, it doesn't matter for David because his focus and his trust is on God. And no one can take God away from him. So you can take all the world. We sing a song like this. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Right? For, for David, you can take everything away from me. Job, the same thing. But you can't take away my God. How you respond in times of trouble reveals the object of your trust. When tragedy strikes and when your closest friends betray you, the natural and sinful response is to lash out at the people around you. It's to scheme and try to manipulate our circumstances back into a way where we want them. The natural response is to become embittered toward God and toward our leader. We're looking for a fall guy. Who is responsible for this mess? But the righteous 
Instead of looking for a culprit, instead of looking for a fall guy, they remember their God and are strengthened in their spirit. They're fine. They find their strength in the Lord in whom they trust. When I am afraid, I put my trust in You. They can't do anything to me. What can mere man do to me? So there's the principle. Here are the four applications that go along with the four main points of the text. Number one, when tragedy and betrayal strike, find your strength in God. So this goes along with what I just got done saying. Uh, that, that how we respond in times like these reveals in whom we trust. So, so the positive way to say it, or the, the, um, a, um, the way of exhortation, to say it in that way is, when those times come, find your strength in God. Don't wait to see what's in there. Find your strength in God. Turn to God instead of turning against other people. Secondly, when tragedy strikes, seek wisdom from God. This is what David did. Remember in verses 7 through 10? He found Abiathar and said, Hey, listen, I need the ephod. I need to talk to God. Go to God in prayer. We have a much better means of communication, uh, lines of communication between us and God. So go to God in prayer. Seek wisdom from His Word. God has told you everything. Listen to this. God has told you everything that He wants you to know in His Word. First Peter, or 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. There's nothing that God left out and said, man, I wish I would have added one more thing so that they could know a little bit more about me and how I work and, and what kind of things they need to trust in. God has given us everything that we need to know in His Word. Thirdly, when tragedy strikes, when, when tragedy knocks you down, get back up through the ordinary means that God has given to you. So for David, remember what those ordinary means were? Instead of just kind of going in despair and giving up and, and turning against other people, he, he says, all right, I'm going to talk to you, God. What, what's the next step? God says, go out and find this. Um, go, go head out in this direction. He finds this Egyptian. And so here, here's what God is doing. God's allowing His hand of providence to, to lead you. And so in your circumstances, get up. Look for the ordinary means by which God brings about deliverance. How is it that God generally works? I'm going to trust Him in that. Look for the fingerprints of God all over your circumstances as He seeks to rescue you. And then make sure you thank Him for that. When joy is restored, don't forget the God who brought you there. So after tragedy strikes and joy is restored like it was for David and his men, receiving back their family and all their possessions, they didn't forget, at least David didn't forget, the God who brought him there. When the battle is over, one of the easiest things for us to do is forget about our foxhole prayer. When the storm is calm, it's easy for us to forget why the storm was calmed and how we made it to a place of safety. It's easy just to move on. Okay, what's the next hurdle that I need to get over? We forgot that God just moved a huge obstacle or helped us to get through this huge trial. We've been fighting and, and wondering and being concerned about this for days and weeks and maybe years. We get through it on the other set, end and say, what's next? Instead of looking back and saying, God, that was all you. We tend to attribute our success in battle to ourselves and forget that God was the one 
who gave us the victory. And we forget all the people who had had a part in making the victory possible. And David didn't do that. He, he remembered the people who had a part in the victory, even though it might have been a smaller part. It wasn't on the front lines. And, and we would do well to, to do the same. When joy is restored, don't forget the God who brought you there. And we could add to that the people who had a part in helping us get this victory. When, when the wicked attack, the, the righteous find their strength in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that You are constantly watching over all of our circumstances and You're directing all of our steps. Lord, we prepare for the day of battle, but victory belongs to You. Some people trust in chariots and horses, but but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And Lord, we have found You to be faithful every time. You've never turned away from us. We've turned away from You, certainly. We've tried to go about things in our own means like David did in chapter 27. But we found You to be faithful and constantly pursuing us. And Lord, would You pursue us once again? Don't let us turn away from You. Don't let us to get so proud that, that we think that, that we can handle our circumstances on our own. And don't let us think that victory came as a result of our efforts. Help us to see the great providence that you are imploring, employing in order to bring about your purposes. Sometimes we overlook how obvious it is. Your fingerprints are all over the work that's been done to bring us to a, a place of restoration. Lord, there may be some in here right now who are on, on the front side of a trial and they're wondering how they're going to get through. Would you give them strength? Would you help them to find their strength in you? Would You give them wisdom through Your Word? Would You help them to have peace as they come to You in prayer and lay all of their anxieties at Your feet, knowing that You care for them? There are others who have been in trials for years don't know how they're ever going to get out. Maybe the only way out is, is when we make it through to the next life. Or would You just give them strength for another day? Would You help them to find their confidence and their boast in You and in the work that Jesus Christ has done. Help them to keep things in perspective. And Lord, we pray for those others in here who may be on the other side of a trial. The trial's over. They at one point didn't know how they were going to make it through it. They didn't know how much strength they would have to get to the other side. And yet, Lord, You were faithful. And You provided the means by which they would be restored. And so, Lord, would You help them to, to recognize the role that You played in it? Help them to, to make this night and this week a time of reflection on what You have done for them so that You will receive the proper praise for what You have done in their trials. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to work together in encouraging one another towards this end. Our, our lives as Christians are not to, meant to be lived alone. We're meant to be lived within a community of believers who love each other and who are working to edify, to build one another up and speak truth to one another in love. 
And so, Lord, would you use us to help challenge each other towards greater godliness and, and uh, give encouragement where it's needed and to help, help uh, join in the praise that comes when you deliver us from our trials. Lord, we pray for your help in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.